Welcome to episode 664 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Hello, Ben. How were your x-rays? They were unfortunately negative. I, had, uh, I was optimistic that I had what is known as walking pneumonia, mm-hmm. which is a non-serious thing but would have explained all of my symptoms. Uh, and would have, I think, my understanding had been not not a difficult fix. Uh, instead, it is not that. I am simply in bad shape. I am still coughing, and now I'm taking other drugs. Okay. That's Thank you for asking. <laughs> Sam Miller health update. Did I you hope know the next one is better? Just then, in the moment before you, in the moment of pause before you said "well" or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, I muted and coughed. <laughs> You've gotten really efficient at that. I coughed twice while you said that sentence. (laughs) All right. We have a guest today. He has been on the podcast a few times before. He is an occasional contributor to Baseball Prospectus. He wrote the Mets comments in the BP annual this year, so we didn't get a chance to have him on the season preview series because he wasn't an essay author. We discriminate against comment authors on this podcast. He is Will Woods. Hello, Will. Hey, guys. How's it going? Okay. It's going I mean, very well for the New York Mets. Yes, that's right. Oh, you, you ruined can't my... ignore us anymore. <laughs> you walked all over my professional segue. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. But if you want proof that Sam and Ben don't talk to each other before the show, the results of Sam's x-rays should, should bear that out fairly well. <laughs> that's true. We were just sitting there silently for about 10 we're minutes like on Skype. Minutes <laughs> I could have asked at any point. <laughs> um, so we're... Nominally here to talk about the Mets. The Mets are a team that everyone's talking about today. Before we talk about the Mets, I suppose we should bring up the latest incident with the brawling Royals. Anyone have any thoughts on this one? It's The game is still going on as we speak, so we do not have the benefit of post-game quotes or explanations or recriminations. So we know only what we saw from the video, which was not all that revealing. But either of you have any thoughts? So uh, Cespedes, one of the Cespedes boys, I assume it was Jake, uh, says that uh, that he speculated that uh, Eaton might have been mad at at Jordano Ventura because uh, he felt that he'd been quick pitched. And this Mm. floored me because I had no idea that quick pitching was a unwritten rules violation. And this might this probably now goes into my I mean, I want to say it goes into my it, it might be my least favorite unwritten rule now. But less because I think that it's so out of character with all the other unwritten rules. I mean, it's perfectly natural, un- perfectly natural that you arbitrarily decide that a thing that puts you at a disadvantage is uh, unsportsmanlike uh, and, and declare that you're going to fight people over it. Uh, however, I love quick pitches. I love them. And I, I, I want more pitchers to do them. I think pitchers should do them. I want stompers to do them. And now I find out that there is like a infrastructure of uh, of morality in the game that prevents a thing I really want from happening, uh, and so if this is true, regardless of whether it's at play here, 
to find that this is an unwritten rule is, is heartbreaking. It, I mean, it really makes me give up hope in a way. Uh, so that's one thing that I would say. Uh, I might say other things if you guys want to say a thing. Oh, Sam, I'm with you. If if quick pitching is, we're going to talk about uh, Cologne in a minute, I assume. And if quick pitching is against the unwritten rule book, then uh, Cologne cannot pitch in the National League ever anymore. <laughs> and yet, I think that that explanation is more plausible than uh, Kurt Schilling on Baseball Tonight, who said uh, that Eaton looked at him. That that was that was the whole thing. Uh-huh. Like, well, well, we're now. I- <laughs> we're now at the point with these guys where we just think that they're the dumbest people on earth that, that looking at <laughs> that looking at him can just cause a whole 50 person brawl that's it it's it's just so it's so absurd and yet yeah of course i love the fight in royals it's amazing yeah so what is the sequence of events here there at the bottom of the fourth ventura hit jose abreu top of the fifth sale hit mustakis both benches were warned at what point did the, the grounder from Eaton happen? Uh, at the end of the seventh, the last out of the seventh. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so the bench is cleared, the bullpen's cleared, there is a massive jostling humanity. Ventura, Kane, and Volquez were ejected. Chris Sale and Jeff Samarja were ejected. There were some punches thrown. I don't know whether they landed. There was a third base coach down. There was a moment where uh, uh, somebody in royal blue... Uh, takes a big uh, a big roundhouse or haymaker or something like that, swing it at uh, Jeff Samarja, and Hawk Harrelson says, a wild punch, I'm not sure, uh, or a, something like a wild throw, uh, not sure who by, and uh, and I wanted to yell, it's Edison Volquez, all you had to know is that it was a wild throw, and it was Edison Volquez <laughs> as well. So yeah, it, bent, yeah, it got crazy. And what were sorry? Uh, were you still narrating? No, that was that was about it. Calvin I, Herrera pitched and didn't throw at anyone after that, uh, right? I uh, I yeah, I don't know what happened. I I I sort of assumed my first my first thinking was that Ventura was uh, maybe he felt like he was coming to the end of his night, and that was maybe his last batter, and he was uh, so he was just pumped up, and maybe he got pumped up with a little too much eye contact, and and got carried away and i don't know I, I i didn't i don't know if that's what happened that was my first thought uh but clearly at, at this point uh you stop giving the benefit of the doubt to the royals right i mean fair or unfair like this is now the parole violation analogy that i use for brett laurie i was i, I didn't want to give the benefit of the doubt to, to brett laurie before uh, unless i had to uh because it's like oh this guy just finds his way into these things he's probably at fault and and the royals at this point are just uh you expect this uh, and so you kind of assume that it's probably them right i mean there's a there's a pattern there's a pattern yeah yeah i mean right this happens a lot and nobody this is no longer controversial I, what i'm saying is basically all the uh the royals truthers out there who are going who are who emailed us last time they're not going to email us again are they <laughs> probably not I, it's amazing how quickly it changed, how quickly it became a thing that we expect because there was none of this. I mean, there was an edge to the team last year, but not this kind of edge. It was a fun edge. Clash um, of plans and things like that. Mm-hmm. Can we talk, uh, can we talk about Lori again too? Because I do feel like, <laughs> I feel like we need to reassess some of our, our grades in light of, 
the fact that he just keeps going. He just keeps talking. Uh-huh. And to me, this is it clearly like getting out of town and then immediately opening your mouth and, and talking about, you know, how tough you were and how lame they were. Like when you're 2000 miles away, it, not real cool. The Albert Pujols thing, like can, can anybody have a phone interaction with Brett Laurie where, that he doesn't run to the press with it? Do you, do you guys know about this? Yeah, the story was that they were that Pujols supposedly had told Laurie that he plays hard and the Royals did Bush League stuff, but it was erroneously reported by the uh, by the San Francisco Chronicle. This is just coming out like tonight, so don't what feel do bad mean, if you haven't seen what you, it. What do you mean erroneously reported? The, the on on Tuesday, I'm like reading from Deadspin now, so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but uh, on Tuesday, the Chronicle had said uh, had had in their story that. Laurie was on first base and Pujols told him that he plays hard and the Royals had done some Bush League stuff. And then earlier tonight, they just walked back on that story um, and, and, and printed there was an erroneous interpretation of Laurie's comments following the Royals suspensions on Tuesday. Uh, two media outlets said Pujols told him the Royals do Bush League stuff when in fact, by that point, Laurie was discussing himself. He was saying that's how the Royals behave rather than Pujols. Two distinct sentences rather than one. I, oh, it, wow. It's like, so, okay. Uh, all right. So, so Laurie just keeps doing interviews uh, and, and that's not real good. And it, and it sort of makes me wonder whether the Royals simply were anticipating all this and in fact deserve credit for seeing deep into his soul and knowing that he deserved retaliation even if he hadn't yet committed the sins. I mean, this is like the minority report uh, of unwritten rules, right? Like, they, as soon as they got into a scuffle with him, they're like, all right, it's only a matter of time before he does something worth retaliating for, so we're just going to retaliate, uh, uh, like, right now instead. And uh, he justified it by continuing to talk, uh, in my opinion. So, still, uh, I'm not, I'm only going to, I'm going to cut Herrera's score by a quarter point, Escobar's by another full point. He is getting down almost... Uh, into forgivable zone, and I'm now bumping Laurie up to a five and a half. Wow, <laughs> we might be readjudicating wow, this thing for the rest of the year. We might be. <laughs> Do you need to? Laurie remains a solid eleven out of ten for me. <laughs> it, I'm just saying in this particular instance. Yeah. <laughs> Andy McCullough tweeted that multiple scouts executives have told him over the past few days that Ventura could not behave this way if he pitched in the NL and had to bat. So yesterday we talked about how the DH should be everywhere. Are you willing to do away with the DH everywhere so that Ventura can stop doing this? I wrote about this once. Do you remember this? I barely remember it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Let me see if I can find it. I wrote I I wrote about this because I wanted to see if it, if it's true that NL pitchers either what get retaliated against more or don't hit batters because they're worried about it. And I found you know, I, I went basically like I went to an enormous amount of work, as I recall, and I found one instance in uh, uh, the previous year where there was a, uh, a pitch thrown at a pitcher in retaliation. And uh, and I found no real evidence that even in the days of Bob Gibson, et cetera, that there was much retaliation. And I think, as I recall, I think I'll correct myself if I check and find out this is wrong. But I think at some point I found that even Bob Gibson didn't seem to have ever really retaliated for anything like that. Like there was maybe like one time where I thought that there was a or maybe it was that he was. I don't remember. Anyway, 
Retaliation, what I found is the retaliation against pitchers is mostly a myth. That's what I found. Multiple scouts and executives must have missed that article. Mm -hmm. Let me check to see how many people. Oh, everybody missed that article. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a well-read article, as it turns out. Not quite Urban Santana's arm slot, but it is uh, not. Uh, not on my, not on my resume. Well, you can add it to the rotation of articles you try to get people to read three years after you wrote them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Touched a nerve. Okay. Shall we move on to the Mets? Oh, goody. All right, we're moving on to the Mets. So the Mets are thirteen and three. They have won eleven straight games. That on its own does not necessarily qualify them to be talked about. Uh, for a podcast episode that that's always the problem at this point in the year there is always a hot team sometimes it's a surprising hot team and you fall into a trap where you want to talk about the hot team but then often they go back to being cold or being lukewarm immediately after that we had this experience with the brewers last year we talked about the brewers sometime toward the end of april when they were i don't know 18 and 6 or something at that point and for the rest of the year, they went 500 and maybe a little bit below 500, missed the playoffs. We were not really buying the Brewers at the time. So you don't have to sell me on doing an episode on the Mets because we were already committed to that at this point. But is there any reason why we should feel better about the Mets than we would for the typical team that has a hot streak at the beginning of the year? Are you are you buying this more so than, than the usual one? What? No, absolutely not. Why would I? Why? Why should you be more sold on the Mets of all teams to be better than the normal team having an eleven-game winning or a ten-game winning streak? Well, or an eleven-game winning streak could no. have been underestimated more so than than the usual team that does this. I don't know. Can I what? jump in with a sure. wait? Can I jump in with more? Because I, I I did a play index. Oh, please. Uh, on this uh, and. Is, uh, sorry, I was reading my article when you were talking. So if if, if I'm saying words that you just said, just is interrupt. So uh, all right. So I looked. I used Play Index to look at the best 16 game stretches uh, in the 162 game schedule era. So that's going back to 61, and I think 61, 61 or 60, mm-hmm. 61. So uh, there have been five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There have been 21 teams that have had a 13 and 3 or better stretch to start a season and and overwhelmingly these teams turned out to be good mm. you were more likely to win 100 games than to finish with a losing record for instance and uh like mm, three quarters won 90 or more and uh there were two teams that ended up with losing records one was the 1988 indians that uh, ended up with 78 wins they had won 61 the year before. And then one was the 1978 A's who had won 63 the year before. And after they started, they started 14 and 3 and then went 55 and 90 the rest of the way. They ended up with 69 wins despite this. So, of course, there is a, it's very difficult to separate, it's somewhat difficult to separate, but there are two things going on here. One, you've won a lot of games. Those count forever and ever and you're probably going to, you know, finish over 500 if you have a you know, 10 win head start. Uh, but two, it's, you know, suggestive of a team that's pretty good. And so, you, uh, you know, mo- like, I think if all these teams were winning 87 or whatever, you'd go, oh, the, you know, just baked in. But most teams won 90, a bunch won 100 
or 95 or 96 or 98 or whatever. And so that's really the question, right? Is the Mets are almost certainly at this point playoff contenders at least. They are probably going to win 85-ish or more games at this point, given what we know. But is that because they are, in fact, a better-than-85-win team, or is it because they've just cooked a nice little start for themselves? Is that That's the premise, yeah? Yeah, I think so. And to pile another stat like that onto this, Ted Berg had one about teams that won 11 straight games. Twenty, They're the 27th team to do that since the year 2000, and the 26th before the Mets averaged something over 92 wins per season, so... Same sort of stat. Let's also let's also note that they have seven guy or nine guys on the disabled list right now. Mejia, the closer, gone for half the season. Darno seems to be always injured in rather bizarre ways on the DL. Right now on the DL, Parnell may never join us again. Uh, he's just persona non grata right now, and. They're just doing it with these irregulars. Eric Campbell looks like an everyday third baseman all of a sudden. Ruben Tejada looks useful, which is a sentence I never, ever thought I would say, considering <laughs> I spent the last two annuals just trashing him in 110-word form. Um, these, these guys, and now Ploiecki comes up and takes Darno's place, and I'm a huge Ploiecki, Kevin Ploiecki fan, and he seems to be totally legit. Like, every guy they bring up, we didn't even... the. The absence of Zach Wheeler has not even been thought of since opening day, which is which is crazy to say. You could have argued he would be their number two this season, and now we don't even think about him. There's Steven Motts and Syndergaard still in the minor leagues. They don't even need these guys. I mean, the, the injuries are ridiculous. And, and Montero they, too, right? Uh, Montero's fine, but he just he actually started for AAA no, Las Vegas tonight. I mean, I mean, Montero also a legitimate starter. Who's in the minors? Yeah, I mean, the, the plan is to bring him up to start, I think, on Tuesday against the Marlins. And then after that, they don't have a day off for a while. So they're going to have to make a decision uh, whether Dylan G or Montero is going to be the fifth guy in the rotation. And then supposedly G had a little hash out with Terry Collins yesterday and then went out and won a game. So they'll have a decision to make there. Yeah. Can you clarify something for me? When you started this, you said, and don't forget nine guys are on the DL. And my first thought was you were going to go, they've been doing it even though guys have been injured. Wait till, the, wait till the reinforcements come back. And then you started talking, and I remember Mets, Mets fan. And, and then it sounded like you were saying, this is all fake because everybody's hurt and they're getting weird out-of-character performances from guys who aren't going to be good, and the guys who are hurt aren't coming back anyway. And then you sort of, at the end, I wasn't sure whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. So the nine injuries, good indicator or bad indicator to the start? I would say good indicator. I mean, it's okay. really what it is, is an indicator of the ridiculous org depth that they have. But I will say that you know Demet Month is a hashtag on Twitter, referring to the extra month longer that it will take for every Met to come back from injury longer mm. than the Mets announce that they will be out. Yeah. So, so when Wright, so when Wright goes on the DL and they say he'll be back in three weeks, we all take that to mean, you know, seven and a half weeks. But, <laughs> and, and you, so you wrote about the depth weeks ago before the Mets won a bunch of games. There was a series at BP, every team's money ball. And you wrote that the depth was the Mets' money ball, basically. So can you summarize that that argument? 
Yeah, basically the story was that you would think if you were playing, uh, if you had the Mets on an out-of-the-park franchise, you would look at them and think, I have to trade from this depth of pitching because the offense is probably subpar or below average, slightly below average, although it hasn't been uh, to date. But they, but Sandy Alderson basically decided, no, I'm going to account for the inevitability of injuries to my pitching staff, keep this depth of pitching, and just make do with decent offense. Basically, he's putting his reputation on the line. Alderson is because by not trading him, by not trading these guys, he kind of looks. He's kind of putting himself out there a little bit. He's believing in Wilmer Flores, which the last few days has looked like a good gamble. But on paper, the team is worse because they did not trade this pitching. But now, with all the injuries, the team is actually, by hedging his bets, they're actually a lot better. And right now, they've been able to put together a little run in part because of that. Is Flores looking good defensively? Or no. You mean the hitting Duh. only? No, no, please. <laughs> no, let's, let's not. I can't. Between, <laughs> between Flores and Murphy, it is really just like... Uh, Murphy the other day uh, threw home on a double play ball and the runner just um, kind of walked back to third or maybe he crawled or maybe he moonwalked I don't even know I don't know how he got back but it's just the two of them over there are really <laughs> just such a disaster it's hilarious but anyway at yeah. least there's Juan Lagares did you see the Lagares catch over his head the other day I did yeah it was gorgeous anyway what did you think of that root? Was that what root efficiency would you give that root? Well, given the arrogance it takes to take that root, I would say <laughs> t- still ten out of ten. Uh-huh. I can do whatever you want. He said after the game that he had no idea how he made that catch, which is remarkably circumspect for a guy who I've never really heard speak. Oh. <laughs> um, you and I have been g chatting with some frequency about Lucas Duda. Why have we been doing that? Remind me. Uh, because he's adorable. Duda Duda has this thing going now where he will see as many pitches as he possibly can which is his MO obviously but he saw I think 21 pitches in his first three at bats in last night's game and then on the first pitch of his fourth at bat just drilled one into the corner on an absolute meatball that the pitcher presumably thought he would never be likely to swing at and that's just one of many reasons that I love this too. You guys, I just watched the Lagar catch. <laughs> I, I can see hear that. that. Hear yes. That. <laughs> Gary Cohen thought it was great. <laughs> um, so Cologne, you have something to get off your chest about Cologne, and that's not any sort of Cologne pun. Oh, is that a fat joke? It's not. Wait, actually. did you guys know that Bartolo Cologne is overweight? <laughs> did you guys hear about this? Uh huh. Yeah, it's becoming like an internet meme. Have you heard about those? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Bartolo Cologne, he's like fat and everything. It's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Can we, like, people just don't want to talk about how, what an amazing athlete this guy is. Like, when he, did you guys see in today's game, he caught uh, Pierzynski on a rundown? Mm-hmm. And really, we should be making fun of AJ Pierzynski. But <laughs> right. instead, instead, it's just like another in a conga line of fat jokes about Bartolo Cologne. Um, his, the, the, the thing that people always want to talk about with Cologne, and I even mentioned it in my comment this year, I think it's been mentioned in like every Cologne comment since 2008 or something, is that he throws somewhere in the range of 80 to 85% fastballs. Mm-hmm. And really, this is one situation where um, where Brooks Baseball doesn't really tell the whole story. You look up the, the tables, 
And you see that he's throwing the same pitch every time, but he's really not throwing the same pitch every time at all. He's really throwing, you know, like 20% of the four seamers up in the zone. He's throwing another 15% of the two seamer that is like sort of Maddox-esque that starts off outside and just kind of nicks the corner run the two-seamer inside, and it just goes to show you that when pitchers do what they're trying to do, it doesn't matter who they are or how bad they are, they're going to they're going to be successful if they do what they intend to do every single time. And Cologne so, is just, you know, a master of that. So is he getting more Cologne-like as, as this goes on? I mean, he's this year, he's I think he's done 26 innings. He's got 23 strikeouts. He's got one walk. And... Even by Cologne standards, I mean, he's like the master of not walking batters, but he's, you know, this is more extreme even than, than we're used to from him. So do you see this as a four, you know, four start fluctuation or like, do you actually see in ways that he continues to develop? Is he more like, I guess what I'm saying is, is he more Bartolo Cologne now than he was uh, the first time you watched him start a game for the Mets a year ago? Is he continuing to grow into his Cologne-ness? You mean is he rounding into the platonic <laughs> ideal of Bartolo Colon? I, I am are of, all these growing and roundings fat references or of, entirely unintentional? No, okay, no <laughs> I'm not a hack. Just okay. calling you on your own. I'm a, I'm a creative. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I so, think I think that I I think I understand what you're saying, and I think I think you're right. I think he's. Definitely, if he wasn't already convinced that he could pull this off at the beginning of last season, he's certainly convinced of it now that he doesn't need to try to be anyone else. Meaning that if he wants to just innovate his own unique way of pitching that no one else in the league is doing, that's exactly what he's going to do. That he feels completely comfortable. He doesn't feel like he has to mix in breaking balls just because that's what other people do. He'll get into situations where you know, uh, he'll try and come inside on a guy and it's coming in at 89 and that's not good enough. And it gets ripped down the third baseline and you're thinking, okay, well, here's where we need a slider. And Cologne just goes, no, I I think I'll just do the same thing that I just did because I know that if I put it where I want to put it, eh, it's fine. And then he'll just throw another fastball and it'll be 90 and it'll be up in the zone. And he'll get away with it because it's exactly where he wanted to put it. I think that's the kind of situation you really cannot, you know, most pitchers you try to guess just what pitch they're going to throw with Cologne. You have to try to guess which fastball he's going to throw. And it's amazingly as, as often as you get the pitch type, correct. You lose that game. You lose that guessing game more often than with any other pitcher because you just don't know. And he does it so well. Are you in a mindset where you are kind of counting on reinforcements at some point to replace the injured guys or because it's the Mets and it's the Wilpons, are you just in a, you know, like we have to win with the but, guys yeah. who are in the organization <laughs> mentality? Yeah, I'm a Mets fan. So at any point, I'm just expecting Alderson to, uh, you know, pull up with a backhoe full of all-stars and just dump them off at City Field. No, I'm not <laughs> expecting any cavalry to arrive to help this team. I think they're in it um, together for better or worse, probably for worse at some point this season because other guys will get hurt. And perhaps for, you know, Cologne, as the season goes on, he may not be able to sustain this kind of pace. I think you could probably say that about a bunch of the guys. But no, I think that this, I think this is the team. I don't think they're... Everything we've seen from them in terms of transactions would lead you to believe that 
success is not going to make ownership say, oh, okay, now time to get aggressive, right? Like we, I don't think that there's any amount, I don't think there's any length of winning streak that could make the Wilpons go, okay, well, we've really got something here. Let's try and let's try and be buyers instead of sellers. This team is still building for the long haul. I think Sandy's been pretty clear about that. He hasn't been clear on a lot of things, but he's been pretty clear about that. All right. So the various playoff odds reports still say that the Mets are basically a 500 team, which maybe will be good enough because they're 10 games over 500 now. But is that uh, what you thought they were and still think they are from this point forward? Uh, I had them pegged at 85. I think that was a little bit optimistic for Pakoda. But one of the things that, you know, a little statistical oddity before the season started was that when Wheeler went down, Pakoda went up. And yeah, right. That was, <laughs> they like, it, it ticked up from, I think, 81 to 82 or 82 to 83. So that's like, I think if anything, there's a really high standard deviation for a lot of these a lot of these young players, a lot of these young pitchers. Um, and so far, you know, Harvey's delivered. I think that's pretty much, and DeGrom's delivered. So I think that's pretty much the story. And yeah, I think it's absolutely sustainable on the pitching side. can't believe we've gotten through a whole podcast episode about the Mets and neither of us brought up Anthony Recker, who has been put in a more prominent role. Oh, isn't he? <laughs> I already used adorable today. I can't <laughs> use it again. That word's not strong enough for him. No, striking. Yeah. Dashing, dashing, yeah. dashing yeah. Anthony Wrecker. Oh, man. He should get to play in the field more often because that man was not made to wear a mask. No, he's like a Magic Mike character <laughs> with uh, shin guards. It's amazing. <laughs> All, All right. right. Well, I just did a quick play index. Wow. You're a play indexing fiend. I'm not interested in the Mets. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. Uh the Nationals last year set the all-time record uh, for a staff with 3.7 strikeouts to walk. Uh, and that's not surprising that the record was set last year. The record's going to get set almost every year. But right now the Mets are uh, are well above it by like four-tenths of a strikeout. However, they're only third in the league. Amazingly, the Mets, with four strikeouts per walk, are only third in the league. The Dodgers are currently in more than an entire strikeout ahead of the Nationals' pace. They've struck out 4.7 batters per walk i'm pretty sure i could find seasons in my lifetime where 4.7 strikeouts per walk by an individual pitcher would have led the league we're in a crazy era you guys <laughs> wow. that's true while we were talking the royals won they are now 12 and 4 and can i just say because we didn't get a chance to banter about it but because we have talked about john carlos stanton's home runs in the past and whether they make him compelling whether hitting home runs is enough to make a player compelling Every home run he hits now is amazing. It's like some rare beast that we have never seen before. Earlier this week, he hit that home run in Philadelphia that was like opposite field over the bullpen, a place where right-handed hitters do not hit home runs. And then earlier tonight, he hit this crazy-looking home run. Did you see the home run he hit tonight, either of no. you? It no, was, I didn't. It was like, it looks like an optical illusion of some sort. It was the second hardest hit ball that we have on record this year from StatCast, 118.5 miles per hour. It was the hardest hit home run that we've had this year, and it had a elevation of like 19 degrees 
Most home runs are like 25, 30 degrees. It is just a very strange looking home run that I don't know that any other person in baseball could hit. You know what it looks like is uh, McGuire's 62nd. Yeah, you're right. Or 61st, or whichever yeah. one that was. But the one that just went, boy, that is a seed. Goodness. Yeah, yeah, good comp. Thank you. Okay. This home run is something. It's unbelievable, isn't it? It is. It is, yeah. Carlos Peguero used to hit these. I, I, I should. <laughs> Carlos Peguero. Yeah, I wrote um, I wrote a Carlos Peguero. I think that yeah, I wrote a Carlos Peguero comment once for the annual, and uh, he had like some crazy number of the lowest angled home runs of the year. And so I got to figure out whether the angles are comparable. Yeah, I never did mention Bob Gibson in that article, by the way. I don't know why I said I did. No <laughs> Bob Gibson mentioned. I don't think I've ever written about Bob Gibson in my life. Bob Gibson seems like he wasn't invested enough in the team concept to have gotten any revenge about anything. <laughs> didn't seem like the person who would care. Like yeah. only if I had personal beef with that guy would I hit that person. Like I wouldn't do it for you. <laughs> that's, that's true. Huh? Seems like I, a Gibson response. I found five uh, in five years. I found two certain instances of retaliation and one, maybe two, that you could surmise. So, like one every year and a half or two years. So. I don't know if I agree with that, Scout. Although, probably at this point. I mean, at this point, yeah, there is a point. Like, one of the two was Vicente Padilla, and Ventura mm. <laughs> is currently acting like Vicente Padilla. So, yeah, at this point, I think that it's true. I think he could have gotten away with a bunch of stuff, though. Anyway, whatever. All right, so that's it. So Will is on Twitter, at IamWillWoods. Thank and, you. <laughs> sure. Uh, and that's it for us this week. So you know where to find our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and support the play index as Sam has been doing throughout this episode by going to baseballreference.com, using the coupon code BP and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Have a wonderful weekend. We will be back on Monday.